Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Grad Chat from PHC Balance, where we talk about topics of grad school beyond academic research, and that may be more difficult to talk about in our day to day. I'm your host, Faye Lin, and I'm a PhD candidate in biochemistry at UCLA. If you like what you see here, check out the PhD Balance YouTube channel for more grad chats, and don't forget to subscribe for notifications about when we go live. I'm excited to chat with our guest today, Lane Cher. Lane is a senior program officer at the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, where she works for the Board of Higher Education and Workforce. Lane currently uh, recently led an expert committee on the report Mental Health, Substance Use, and Well-Being in Higher Education, Supporting the Whole Student. She also had the opportunity to lead the report Graduate STEM Education for the 21st Century, which was released in 2018. Lane cares deeply about higher education policy, the research enterprise, and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Prior to her time at the National Academy, she worked at the National Science Foundation in their Directorate for Education and Human Resources. So welcome, Lane. How are you doing today? I am thrilled to be here. And how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I always love these grad chats because I get to talk to someone really cool and just ask them about their journey, their professional life, and all kinds of new aspects of science that they can be working on. So I'm really excited to talk to you today because if we want to start out, you mentioned that you've worked on these student well-being reports. Mm -hmm. And if you just want to start by talking a little bit about what, what did those reports entail? What were their main messages? Yes, absolutely. I came to the National Academies in 2016 to work on the report on graduate STEM education. And the first thing that I did when I came in was I was handed a report from 1995 on the same topic, looking at doctoral and master's education, who's getting degrees, what are the major issues. And when I sat down to read it, there were some major themes that came out. Uh, who uh, Who's going into which careers? What are we learning about diversity, equity, and inclusion? What do we know about mentorship? You know, what is the core of a PhD or a master's education? And when I finished reading it, I went to my boss and said, what, I, what if we have nothing new to say? Because so many of the issues that I had been hearing about from graduate students, from the researchers who work on graduate education to faculty and PIs who work directly with students were this set of issues. And as we continued to do the work, um, we were able to go a little bit deeper into some of the issues on careers. The, we know that over 50% of people with PhDs go into fields um, beyond academia. We've known this for years. And so why does the system of graduate education really have a lot of incentives for the faculty, for the universities to train students as if there's only one destination in mind? And there's around that, the, that set of incentives, really what drives the system are those other components. So career preferences, 
mentorship. Mentors aren't getting evaluated or supported or uh, incentivized to be exposing the students that they're working with to all of these other careers. The rest of the department's uh, career services often aren't equipped to work specifically with PhD students. And then students themselves often don't have, while they have certainly the curiosity and um, the drive to pursue those careers, they might not necessarily have the tools to do so. And especially for students who are first generation, who are from uh, race or ethnic um, groups that are marginalized in STEM, and especially depending on the discipline, the gender imbalances between departments can be really severe. Um, sexual and gender minorities, students with disabilities, these are all um, individuals and identities that might find STEM research environments and graduate departments um, anywhere between ambivalent to hostile. And so one of the key differences between the 1995 report and this report in 2018 was a specific recommendation that graduate schools needed to think about the mental health and well-being of their graduate students. That it wasn't enough to say, you know, all these other things are important, you need to be looking at the education alone. It's really saying that if you're not allowing students to bring their whole selves, all of their identities to a department to thrive, they will not. And it's not incumbent on the student to sort of twist themselves into a, a pretzel trying to accommodate the environment. The environment isn't successful if it isn't supporting all students. And so then we went into the second study that looked really at uh, mental health, substance use, and well-being. We expanded the bounds. So we were looking at community colleges all the way through graduate school. And it was really illuminating to see just how important it is for faculty and PIs, for staff, for leadership to really be thinking about how does this educational environment support the goals both in learning and in um, sort of career and professional orientation for students? Does it allow them the ability to pursue the variety of careers they might want and to express themselves and be sort of true to their own nature? And I think the, the big takeaway from both of these reports is that student-centered education should really be at the mission of every single college and university. And unfortunately, a lot of factors that affect higher education, um, boards of trustees, um, public funding, um, grant money from research um, supporters. So uh, anywhere from federal to private to nonprofit, but a lot of the incentives that drive the system of education don't have the students' best interests in mind. And so until you know those bigger pieces can be re configured in order to put the students back at the center of education, um, it's going to be a, a set of sort of iterative changes for students and their faculty to make on the ground to make those adjustments and hopefully get to a place where the well-being of students and actually of faculty too um, are in a better position to um, persist and to thrive. I love that. I, I really love these initiatives that one, take a very like intentional approach to first making it aware that mental health is important. We got to think about it explicitly and very intentionally and it deserves absolute attention. And then also the second aspect of 
focusing on systemic change and systemic issues because like as a grad student when I mean at this point I've been really active in these mental health spaces and I've really connected with so many different people who do work systemically to improve mental health awareness and well-being but I remember in the beginning it was a lot about these campus resources saying do yoga you know just just massage your scalp make your bed and take care of yourself. Yeah, exactly. It's like, how is, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can massage my scalp, but like, how is that mm-hmm. going to improve maybe tough relationships with, with an mm-hmm. advisor or imposter syndrome or so mm-hmm. many other layers of, of very tough issues that you mm-hmm. can face as a grad student. So I think this, re- this report sounds awesome. I think it's, an, it's such a great, message and approach to go at it so systemically. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the big things that the report really calls out is that if universities are doing their jobs and providing an environment that really is supportive to well-being, that some of the clinical issues that mental health, the more serious issues um, for mental health illness, for other disorders, it might not necessarily Um, bring everyone to the doorstep of counseling. If you're having, um, or if colleges and universities, staff are supportive of students, it might actually reduce the amount of students who are coming to seek clinical services, a preventative approach, one that really um, makes sure that, you know, bias towards um, any students who have identities that might not be fully respected on campus, making sure students are aware of their resources, having policies that really protect students for leave of absence, whether um, it is for any health reason, for mental health, um, for pregnancy, um, to support um, if they have dependents, you know, making sure that all of the the life situations are accommodated for and that there's really clear guidance on how students can make sure that they can navigate life and their school, it just makes it easier for everyone. But I think the fact that higher education was really set up to serve a certain certain set of um, students, so men often from higher higher income brackets um, who had support at home, means that now the universities are having to make sure that their policies and procedures are inclusive of everyone. And so doing a full scale um, review of, you know, who are really talking to when we're looking at, you know, our own policies and procedures is critical. Um, Even those, you know, sort of the the not super um, interesting shifts in those guidelines, the department guidelines can really help ensure that when students are encountering issues that they can go back and say, well, these are what I'm supposed to be accommodated or these are the accommodations I should be allowed to have. Can we have a conversation about it? Um, I think compliance should always be the floor not the ceiling. And there's a lot of other things that can be done, but if you don't have a good foundation, everything is gonna be shaky from there on. Right. Yeah, this is all this is all great stuff. And Lane, I know your career focuses in science policy. And I, I think I do want to take a moment to, to ask you, how did you find your career in science policy? And what advice would you have to those who would like to pursue a career in higher education or science policy? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And I think from what I've seen from my colleagues at the National Academies of Sciences, at the National Science Foundation and other places, there is no one way to get to a career in higher education or science policy which is great because that means you can start anywhere and make your way in, but it also means there isn't um, a, a real path to get there either. There isn't sort of a do this, you know, start here, do this, step next, do this, and then you'll arrive at your destination. There are um, a number of fellowships. Um, I imagine a lot of people who are listening are familiar with the AAAS Science and Technology Policy Fellowships um, and some of the other AAAS fellowships on um, there's the Mass Media Fellowship. Um, there are some congressional fellowships also. The National Academies, we have our own Merzion Fellowship, but there are a number of other ways to go about um, making your way in. And so my background is actually in English and art history. And I worked for several years as a fundraiser for nonprofits. I did grants management. I really um, worked with a lot of uh, the directors of programs and making sure that um, their programs were getting the funding that they needed. And after a period of time, I thought, I really wanna be doing program work, not necessarily the support work for it. And I went back to get my master's in public policy, was thinking broadly about higher education issues, nonprofits, philanthropies, and the kind of how we make sure that funding gets distributed to new ideas, what innovation looks like. And when I finished, I was looking for a job and I was running up against a lot of uh, issues. A lot of the places that I applied for wanted me to come in and work as a fundraiser, doing major gifts or doing foundation relations, which is, I went to grad school to pivot out of that. And so I wasn't keen on going back into that world. And so when I was applying for jobs, I had a chance to meet with someone at the National Science Foundation. And that person took a risk uh, with meeting with me. They knew I had an interest in higher education. We both had worked in philanthropy for a period of time. And we had a great conversation and they happened to be hiring a science assistant, which is a role at the National Science Foundation that lasts for two years. And I worked there in the sort of at the at the desk of the assistant director for education and human resources. And it was eye-opening. I got, I wasn't quite sure what I was walking into, but I got to work on everything from congressional responses, the annual budget, um, working on presentations for the National Science Board, um, getting to go to conferences, getting to go um, help with remarks for different presentations for my bosses. And I think the best thing that I got to work on or the thing dearest to my heart was working with the National Science and Technology Council. There is a committee on STEM education that ropes in 15 different federal agencies that have investment in higher or in STEM education. And I got to work across the 15 agencies looking at investments from K through 12 teacher education through graduate education, broadening um, uh, broadening diversity in STEM. And it was really a great opportunity to see a little bit of everything. Um, and when that position ended after two years, I had been having conversations with different people who I had met throughout my time at NSF. And I had a chance to take this opportunity at the National Academies. And my colleagues are incredible and we all bring a different skill set to the team. Some of us really focus on 
some are have stronger research skills. Some of us are stronger at public speaking. There is a strong component of grant writing in it. So having that background in fundraising has helped me a lot. And it's a great team environment. I really appreciate, I have colleagues who've worked on issues from sexual harassment in academia, the science of effective mentorship in STEM, and broadly in the National Academies, they're working on some of the COVID response, um, the science around COVID and the policy recommendations for how to return to schools, what's safe, uh, what's an equitable distribution for the vaccine. And it's a real pleasure to get to work at a place that has so much um, intellectual curiosity baked into it. Wow. That is all so cool. I think it's really valuable. I mean, I, I can speak for myself personally as a grad student who is interested in careers outside of research to hear about more about what, what's out there in the sciences mm -hmm. outside of research. And I know as far as the audience of Grad Chat, a lot of other people are grad students thinking along those same lines. So it's always really interesting to hear the different careers that people are, are up to. And science policy sounds like an incredibly important and, and crucial area of work, for sure, from what you've described. And this leads a little bit into the next question here that says a lot of the work you do focuses at the national level. Do you have any challenges staying connected to the mission of the work? Absolutely. I think that in the day to day, it's really easy to get caught up in the to-do list, what's next, what sort of paperwork do I have to file, what has to get done. And I'm someone who is really driven by the objectives at hand. And so I can get very myopic and really focus in on what's in front of me. And I think having the opportunities to do chats like this, to go to colleges and universities and speak to students, those are the times when I really understand that this Education is happening now. There are, I think there's a tendency uh, working with academics, with some researchers to be thinking about the hypotheticals, to be thinking about, well, what would happen if we did this? How might you know this solution to an issue be implemented? How might this strategy work? And I think it's incredibly important to think about the broad options that might be in front of a policy problem. But at the end of the day, it's important to remember that any of these issues that we're looking at at the National Academies are affecting people now, that these are critical things that education is happening for students, for, um, for the professors, for uh, universities. It is happening as we speak. And the faster that we can think about the ways that the research can inform evidence-based policies, the more likely it is to have impact. And that disconnects sometimes between what we do, which is these reports, uh, workshops, webinars, and thinking about how that translates into what impact does it have is incredibly difficult sometimes. And thinking about uh, how do we measure that? How do we prove to uh, the federal agencies, the taxpayers who support this work is hard to imagine also. And so I think just for me, getting to do um, work like this, getting, um, I coach Ultimate Frisbee too, so I get uh, get to hang out with some college students um, a couple times a week, but they they remind me of what what's really at stake here. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, even great jobs are jobs and getting 
getting back to sort of the the core of what is at stake is incredibly important no matter what um what field you're working in yeah and i think that's that's such an important perspective to keep in mind because oftentimes you see these like mental health initiatives that seem more to be there to to check a box saying oh we we did this you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, we did our, our yearly wellness seminar. It's done. But, mm-hmm. but there's also this perspective to keep in mind that, you know, wellness, first of all, is, is permeates every day of our lives is important mm-hmm. and it affects, definitely affects people. And it's something we need to think about if we have poor wellness practices that people are being harmed by this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think oftentimes some of these more institutional initiatives that I've seen are more come from the motivation of let's just check a box it's not out of this genuine Mm -hmm. desire to help people honestly but it it really is so important to keep in mind that people are being impacted by this Mm -hmm. and we need to be intentional about how to really efficiently get this work done change is slow but we how can we push it forward so that we can improve improve things so i i do think that it we need more people who can really tackle it in that way mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it's done some leadership and just a a content warning for the report that we that the team that i work with worked on on sexual harassment in academia we talk a lot about that line before that compliance is the floor and not the ceiling i think a number of us who have had to go through uh, bias training or awareness training around sexual assault or harassment it can really feel like it is just a compliance exercise that it's just sort of something that you click through in order to get to the end so for the next year, you are okay to do um, whatever training or supervising that needs to be done. And that's the end of it. But unless our leaders are really talking about the importance that these issues have on individuals, if department chairs and not even just uh, people who have formal titles, but sort of, we all know faculty at a department who carry more weight than others. Uh, you know, there are definitely leaders and sort of champions of change that can come in and say, this is important and this matters. And without that accountability that really um, is demonstrated in the day to day, it can feel like a compliance exercise. And I think in a similar way, mental health and the way that we treat each other um, in terms of uh, standing up to people who are um, anywhere from showing microaggressions to just, uh, we talk about microaggressions a lot, but there's also just straight up aggression and hostility that is um, directed at different people for you know either their identities or for, um, and sometimes it's even simple bullying. Not that bullying is simple, but sometimes it's not motivated necessarily by a particular identity. If there aren't people in positions of power willing to stand up and address that, it is demonstrating that it is a culture that tolerates that sort of behavior. And it's really incumbent on the people who have the power in any system to be standing up and saying that this is not how we're going to operate. And unless that um, the leadership takes on that responsibility, change is much slower to happen. Um, it really takes the people who are in those key positions to drive the change and hold others accountable for how they treat other people. And policies can help support that. Institutional priorities can help support that. And so it's um, 
I've been told it's, you know, uh, top down, bottom up and sideways out. It takes every single level of the cake to, um, to build up, to make something that is going to work. I think that's so important. And I just want to echo the idea that in, in a place like academia, where there are huge power dynamics, yep. just having people at positions of power championing these things is super powerful. Cause like, even, you know, I speak about these things as a grad student, but at the end of the day, I acknowledge that my status as a grad student does limit the type of impact, unfortunately, impact that uh, impacts mm-hmm. the type of push that I, I can get in these issues. And it's, I think that's one of the things that I always talk to other people about that. Do you, can you think of any faculty allies that can help you with this? Because, mm-hmm. you know, systemically there is still power imbalance and we need to balance it out and we need to get some higher up people on board with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I do want to shift gears a little bit and give you some time to talk about your own mental health journey. And you shared with us in our PhD Balance intro post that you did take three months off of work for your own mental health. Is there mm-hmm. anything you'd want to share about navigating what that experience is like or how has your personal journey with mental health been? It's been uh, something that I've been working on, I would say, since my early teens. And I think for me, uh, the opportunity to work at a, a national level report on mental health and well-being was a really great way for me to process some of the things that I had been seeing within myself. And most importantly, I think the the big takeaway for me was really to address the stigma that is attached to so much of uh, mental health issues, mental health disorders. And within the time that I was at the National Academies, I had been starting to work with some diagnoses of anxiety and depression with my therapist that I had had been working with for a couple of years. And the real sort of switch is when I experienced a series of concussions between 2018 and 2019. I had Uh, three within seven weeks of each other. And then I had a fourth in the spring of 2019. And I simply was unable to take care of myself. I was working on a project on teacher education that I had to step back from. I had to sort of rearrange a lot of my work situation to accommodate the fact that I was incredibly fatigued. I could not focus. I was having migraine headaches uh, more days of the week than not. And I think I was so far um, immersed into the pain of my symptoms that I couldn't really see that what I needed to do was take a bigger step back. And I muddled through a couple of months. Um, Some of my triggers are sun, heat, and humidity. And so living in Washington, D.C., the summer of 2019 was a particularly difficult time. And I thought by fall, when some of the symptoms were abating, that I was out of the woods turning around to early 2020, I was starting to move the project on mental health from gathering evidence and research to starting to write. And one of the great things that I'm given the opportunity to do at work is to contribute a lot of writing to these reports. And I was excited to get started. And then um, summer started where, as we can all remember, um, we were about month three into the pandemic at that point. I had my part of my ceiling in the apartment that I had been living in collapse. So knock on wood, I'm in a new place now. And a number of other factors were playing into um, 
some, you know, the heat and humidity had come back and some personal issues really triggered another episode of anxiety and depression. And while I worked through the suburbs to sort of get to the point where my medical team was ready to support me to go on leave, and I had put my work in a position that was easily able to be handed off, it was one of the more difficult decisions that I had made. And I thought it, as I was working on, you know, writing up um, sort of like what characteristics are associated with people who have anxiety. Um, how do we support students who need to go on medical leave? I just kept thinking that it, the irony of me going through an experience in my own body where I was really struggling and being in writing something that I hoped would help people. I really thought that if I can't take the message of how important mental health is, that if I need to take a step back, I should, then I have no business writing this report. And so I took um, September through early December, I was at home taking care of my mental health, doing a lot of doctor's appointments. And I feel incredibly fortunate that I had such a suite of uh, specialists that were willing to help me. And I feel much better now. It has been um, about six weeks since I've been back and it's definitely a, a slow ramping up. But I think that no matter what, it, it if you are thinking that you need the time, it is worth taking the time. There's nothing that really compares to it. Um, and it's it, for me, it took a lot of getting over my internalized stigma to say, no, it time off is time off for health reasons. And the fact that it is for my mental health is not an issue. Yeah. That really resonated with me too. When you were saying that it's, you're, you're working on these reports that focus on student well-being, and it's still hard to mm -hmm. tell yourself to take the time off or to prioritize self-care. And I also relate to that so much as someone who's also been pretty active in this mental health awareness space. And I think that just speaks to how prevalent the stigma is in our society where, I mean, I just want to throw the message out there that it it's hard. Like as, as people who like work in these spaces and have actively done research or like, like or if this is your job working in these spaces, it's still hard to prioritize mental mm -hmm. health. And that's, that's due to stigma. And, you know, we are, we're all working to change that, but also just to normalize the conversation as well, that it's, it's hard, whoever you are. And I think a lot of times, at least in my interactions with people in, in uh, the mental health sphere is, is people ask me, how are you able to do it with so much stigma? And the answer is it's still hard. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's definitely yeah. still hard. So sounds like you've been through a lot of, of tough stuff. How, I mean, how is your, are you, are you back to work now? How, how is your, um, how's your day-to-day -day been? I have to say, I, when I came back, I sort of felt like, you know, I had three months off and I was going to hit the ground running. And I had to remember that the time that I took off wasn't a vacation. I think that was the other important thing. I wasn't lounging. It wasn't a recreational time. I was using that time to heal and to get better and to figure out with my doctors, some of the ways that I hadn't been uh, sort of my the balances and the chemicals in my brain were not working 
to their best effect. And really making sure again, that it's that the stigma part really gets sticky. I kept thinking, you know, I took these three months off. I should feel fine. I should feel a hundred percent better. But I think what I had to realize was the amount of time that I took off was helping me get back to from way under the water to maybe um, sea level and starting from sea level. It's not like I built up like a huge, um, a huge cushion, I was at sea level. And so even my fluctuations day to day, there's some days that I still feel a bit underwater and that I need to really work to pace myself. And it's, I think going to be, I'm at a point right now where I might've taken on more than I have um, cause I was so excited to get back to work that I'm sort of in the process of balancing it out with um, saying no to some more things or trying to figure out how to balance the, the, the low that I have now. And of course, we're also working in a pandemic, which makes everything just so much harder and reminding myself that it, I'll make mistakes. I am going to be someone who is, you know, there's sort of how I want to operate and then how I feel. And those aren't always the same things and that I have to listen to my body a little bit more to see what I'm capable of doing. Yeah. And when you were saying this expectation that, you know, I took this time off and I quote should feel better, but, and, and then the self-questioning, why don't I feel better? Or why, how come I'm not past sea level, et cetera. I think that also resonated with me a lot as well, because I, I think even when I took the steps to be like, you know, it's okay if I'm at sea level, it wasn't a vacation. And I, I spent this time trying to recover. I remember there are still other people around me. And I, I don't know if this was your experience as well, but I just remember other people perpetuating this idea of why aren't you better? Or, I mean, these people are probably the ones who from honestly a very uh, baseline level still have a lot to understand, have yet a lot mm -hmm. to understand about mental health. And I try to remind myself of that as well, but I think it's, it's really two layers. One being the one validating yourself, being like, okay, I took this time, I'm at sea level, I should be happy with that. And, you know, need to just keep work on my own growth. But then there's this other level of how do you handle other people around you, who still promote the stigma, unfortunately, and it's, mm -hmm. it's still something that we need to very much improve how other people around you are going to respond to you trying to prioritize mental health. I think it's incredibly hard and it's something that I think can also, when you're not feeling great, can also be a draw on your energy too. And so it's, I think that idea of um, sort of working on two different fronts is incredibly difficult for me. And I think it you know, we get into intention versus impact, which is, I think a lot of the times people are well-intentioned and it's coming out of hope that like, oh, I they should be feeling better now because they've had three months off and I'm so excited to see, you know, how they're feeling now. And um, there's this idea that you can, that you can work your way out of it, which isn't necessarily unlike, I mean, I've had a battery of physical injuries, but for example, I have arthritis in my knees. I go to physical therapy. There's a lot that we're doing around strength and conditioning, but there's an issue that's underlying that where it's, I don't have cartilage, much cartilage left in my knees. I just don't anymore. And so there's some rehab that we can do around it. And, but there's no, there's a certain amount where no matter how much work or additional, you know, injections, 
uh, therapies that I do for it, it's not going to bring that cartilage back. And I think people can grasp that issue. And that sort of like, oh, okay, you have arthritis, like you're not going to be able to run anymore or not to the extent that I used to. And that there's some limitations there that, you know, sort of without judgment that people don't get what I say that I have depression. It's not something necessarily that I'm going to ever um, exist without. I'm going to, it's something that I manage. It's something that I treat. You know, I go to therapy. I check in with my psychiatrist. We monitor the the levels of my different, um, you know, the different medications that I'm on. But at the end of the day, it's not a deficit. It's just something that about how I operate. And so I think that while, again, reminding people that you might have intended to say or intended to, you know, um, express your excitement on me coming back or that you're hoping that I'll get better and that's all good. The impact of it is you're making me feel like I'm in control of something that I I can address and that I'm working to. But um, someone once described, um, I was at a talk and they described um, trying to treat depression and anxiety with the tools that we have with therapy and a lot of the, um, the different sort of uh, psychopharmaceuticals that are available, like trying to do a paint by number that you might get, you know, in a coloring book with a um, paint roller. Um, that it's just the tools aren't quite there to really hone in to be as specific as they need to be. And so that's why it requires a lot of maintenance. And um, that that education and that awareness in the broader, the broader population is still something that... Um, hopefully is I think getting better, but is not, I think it takes those conversations one-on-one to have it really stick with someone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love this overarching message that this, you know, mental health struggle is not something within your control and it takes a lot of work and maybe self-discovery to find what works for you and finding the people who will be, the support for you. And it's, it's such a journey, such a tough human journey is what it is. And so I think we're running out of time for this grad chat and I don't want this end because I love chatting with you, but Lane, if there's anything that comes to mind for you that you want to just share with our audience before we log off today. Um, I think that the work that you all are doing and having community, especially now, is so incredibly important. And just to remind people that um, if there are questions uh, about research and evidence, you know, there are the reports in the National Academies. But, you know, in terms of figuring out what's right for your own life, you're the expert on your own self. And so figuring out the best way forward, um, it's a lot of trust in who you are and recognizing um you know, when it's okay to step back. And if you're thinking that you need to cool the jets a little bit, you probably would be, not that you need to, but you might benefit from it. So um, from someone who's pretty type A, and I think a lot of grad students get into what they like to do because they care so much, you can't have that positive impact on the world if you're running on an empty battery. So take care of yourself first and then um, you'll have more to give um, to the causes that you care so much about. Awesome. I love it. Woo. 
This has been Grad Chat. <laughs> this has been Grad Chat from PhD Balance. If you liked what you saw today, because I certainly did, because I chatting with Lane is awesome. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel below and you can get notifications about when we go live. Grad Chat goes live every Saturday, 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern. So I hope you all will join us next time and we will see you soon. Bye. Thanks so much. <laughs>